here is Psalm 148 to lead us into worship. Psalm 148. Stand and let's get ready for worship. Praise the Lord from the earth, great sea creatures and all ocean depths, lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding, you mountains and all hills, fruit trees and cedars, wild animals, all cattle, small creatures, flying birds, kings of the earth, all nations, you princes and rulers on earth, young men, maidens, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His splendor is above the earth and the heavens. He's raised up for his people a horn, the praise of all his saints of Israel, the people close to his heart. Praise the Lord. That's what we do today, Lord. We praise you. You brought us here safely. You create, author, and make every moment in time. You bless us with safety, provision, protection, challenge. You rally us together as your people in your sanctuary, and now we praise you in return. God, we give you praise, thanks, and honor, and glory. May we sing to you in spirit and in truth. All these things we ask in your son's name. Amen. I know you're Neil. Be right with you. You're the Oracle? Bingo. Not quite what you were expecting, right? Almost done. Smell good, don't they? Yeah. I'd ask you to sit down, but you're not going to anyway. And don't worry about the vase. What vase? face. I'm sorry. I said don't worry about it. I'll get one of my kids to fix it. How did you know? Oh, what's really going to bake your noodle later on is, would you still have broken it if I hadn't said anything? Mmm. We're talking about predestination this morning. Did he break the vase because she said something, or he was always going to start deep with the matrix? Here we go. We have started a tradition here around the church of uh, several times a year handing out cards for you to write difficult questions on that you'd like to hear addressed in a service. And then we build services around those questions, and that's the series that we're starting today, and we'll run for the next, uh, for this week included four weeks. So we have some great questions from you about this issue this morning. Here they are. One of you wrote, God gave us free will, yet has a plan for us. How do we reconcile these two things? Do we really have free will if God has planned everything? Another of you wrote very briefly, predestination versus free will, question mark. So I thought that was great. We made that the title of the series. What will be the role, another of you wrote, what will be the will of, what will be the role of free will in the new kingdom? Can there be a world free of sin, but still full of freedom? That's actually very poetically, uh, you should write a song. That was very well phrased. We're going to answer that today. And one of you wrote in regarding evangelism, how do you respond to a seeking non-believer friend 
who is bothered by the whole predestination, God has a plan, so why bother thing? These are great questions you have asked. These are hard questions you have asked. And these are deep questions. We will go deep into the recesses of Christianity to answer these questions. But first, I want to start far, far away from Christianity and tell you that Christians aren't the only ones grappling with this question. This morning, all over the world, physicists, biologists, and philosophers are also grappling with this same issue. The question when they ask it is, are we really free acting agents or are we acting as we must? Because since the formation of the universe, everything has just been a cascade of stimulus and response. And all of us are doing exactly what we must do. That's the question. So there are uh, scientists and philosophers who believe in predestination. They call their philosophy hard determinism. So a hard determinist would say, you all came to church today on a day you heard there was going to be bad weather. Why did you do that? Did you choose to come to church today? Or did you have a chemical impulse in your brain, shaped by your genetics and the society you grew up in, that triggered you to do it? And could you really have resisted that impulse? That's the question. Hard determinism is a fascinating philosophy when you spin it out. I wish I had time to go over it with you, but I don't. And that's not what we came here for, so we won't go there. However, a hard determinist would say that the electrical impulses in your brain and mine is forcing us to react negatively to the idea of discussing hard determinism because of how we were brought up and the culture we live in. I don't know where it comes from, but we're not going there either way. We're moving on. So we came here to discuss the Christian version, predestination. The idea that God's power is so sovereign over the universe that nothing happens that is not his will or activity. So already I'm in trouble, for not every Christian defines predestination that way. So we're going to have to say this right up front. There are a variety of answers to this question, even within our congregation, Lakeland Community. If Pastor Dan or Pastor Marta were standing up here, they would be giving you a very different answer than I'm about to. In fact, in first service, you should have seen the two of them sitting side by side in the prayer circle, whispering, heretic, burn him. It was (laughs) super ornery, but that's what was happening. All right, it's a true story. So uh, they would give you a very different answer than I'm going to. Now, how can three pastors be in the same church and have different beliefs? It is because... Predestination is what we call a non-essential belief. Okay, essentials and non-essentials. They're a very important part of who we are here at Lakeland Community. So this is also a great time of year, new year, for us to get straight one more time on non-essentials. Non-essentials can be confusing. So let's understand them right here before we start doing ministry for 2017 together. Non-essential beliefs are beliefs we don't divide over. That's what they are, beliefs we don't divide over. It doesn't mean the beliefs aren't important. It means, although they're important, we don't divide over them. Non-essentials doesn't mean we don't preach about them on a Sunday morning. We do preach about them. We're doing it right now. But it does mean, say it with me, 
We don't divide over them. I only saw two lips moving. <laughs> Got to try it again. Non-essential beliefs are beliefs we don't divide over. Very good. Non-essential doesn't mean we don't. Having a church, official church stance on them. But it means even though it might be an official church stance, we don't divide over them. I think you got it. If you don't, you will soon. So predestination is a non-essential doctrine. It's important. And we preach about it. And we have a church document that gives our official church position on it. But it's so sticky that if Dan or Marta and I disagree with the official church perspective, we are not dismissed from preaching for it. So Jesus is the Son of God. That's an essential doctrine. If I stood up here this morning and preached that Jesus doesn't have to be the Son of God and he doesn't have to be divine, that would be my last sermon here. We do divide over that because that's an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. Now that might send some of you into a tailspin. Pull up, pull up, because you think, well, I'm sitting here today and I'm not sure that Jesus is the Son of God. Now you said last week I was free to explore that here. And you are. You are free to explore that here. But you'll never make it to the preaching pulpit with that belief. You'll never make it to leading our children's ministry with that idea that Jesus might not be the Son of God because that's a core to our identity, a core belief of who we are. So you're free to explore it. But for many functions of the church, we will divide on that issue because it's essential. Predestination, not essential. Now, predestination is extra sticky because this is an independent Presbyterian church, and predestination is a very important Presbyterian doctrine. So there's this document called the Westminster Confession of Faith, written about 500 years ago. This confession describes what Presbyterians believe, and here are a few statements I want to read you from that confession. Remember, this was written 500 years ago. So chapter 3, section 3 of God's eternal decree, article 1. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin. Article 3 says, Although God knows whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed by the decree of God, for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestinated unto everlasting life, and others foreordained to everlasting death. So that means that, according to this doctrine, God has already decreed and de- by his will which humans and angels go to eternal life and which don't. Now, every Presbyterian minister, when they are ordained, are given the opportunity to state if you have any exceptions to the Westminster Confession of Faith. So they're saying, we'll ordain you if you disagree with this document, as long as you tell us up front which parts you disagree with. So at that time, Dan had some exceptions, and Marta had some exceptions, and I had some exceptions, and and this is one of them. These statements about predestination would now fall under my exceptions, which is uh, supposed to have been a warning to all of you that I'm not very Presbyterian when it comes to predestination, just so we all know that up front. So that's because when it comes to the biblical language this comes from, words like election, chosen people, predestination, I interpret the scriptures, scriptures more like an Anglican. So more like a Church of England pastor than I do a Presbyterian pastor, along with scholars like N.T. Wright. 
So uh, when I hear chosen, it goes this way, that God chose Israel to be a light to the world. Therefore, God chose Christ to carry on the mission of Israel. Therefore, God chooses anyone who is in Christ to be part of that original mission for which he chose Israel. God didn't choose Israel and the church to be saved and go to heaven. He chose them to represent him in the world. He chose them to be the ones through whom his message would come. So not chosen for eternal life or not, but chosen for mission. Chosen to be the ones through whom God would reveal his plan for eternal life. I believe Paul argues this in the Bible, where he says that when Israel rejected Jesus, it didn't mean God's plan failed. Because, Paul says, by their casting away the Messiah, salvation has gone out into the world. So Paul says God chose them to reveal the Messiah to the world. When they cast the Messiah out, his message went out into the world. So they fulfilled the purpose for which they were chosen, even though they were trying not to. So now no one can say they are the chosen race. We are the chosen people. Everyone must say we have been chosen for the mission of God. But we have all disobeyed and now we can only come to God by his grace and his mercy. I know how thick that got. We've gotten into the deep weeds fast this morning. Been going like 10 minutes. But this is the nature of the question that you're asking. And I'm trying to be as clear as I can, but I just am saying this is a hard question. And there are a variety of Christian answers to it. Even in our church, the three primary teachers don't all quite agree. I encourage you to take Pastor Dan or Pastor Marta out to lunch. Marta, I think, likes McAllister's. Dan, I see at Chipotle off and on. Ask them about their take on predestination. It's fascinating. I totally understand it. I totally respect it. It makes sense as they say it. And there's a beauty to it. But I'm not qualified to present it to you because I don't interpret the scriptures that way and I'll, I would just misrepresent it. But ask them. So does everyone see what's happening here this morning? You're, you're, you're trying to ask a straight truth doctrinal question. What is true? about predestination. And I'm giving you a bunch of words this morning about how to live as one church even though we disagree. Now, I will answer your questions in a moment just as you ask them. But I mean this that I'm about to say. This lesson that you've gotten already about unity and non-essentials is more important than the rest of this message is going to be. What you've already heard this morning is what really makes us a Christian church. The rest of this will just be theology and philosophy. So having said that, let me, I will now share my point of view on it, which I hope now you understand does not represent this entire community. And we're agreeing not to fight about it because it's a non-essential. And non-essentials are the things we what? All right. Well, let me confess up front. I get most of my thoughts on this matter from the writings of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was a British Anglican again. I warned you about the Anglicanism. um, Who lived from 1898 to 1962. He has written many Christian books and is almost certainly the most quoted Christian in the English language right now. I wanted to read you a long passage from his book, Mere Christianity, but 
I practiced it once. And when you read Lewis out loud, it's really thick and hard to digest by ear. So I'm going to paraphrase it, but I'm paraphrasing it line by line. These are his comments on predestination and free will, which have informed my thoughts for a couple of decades now. Here they are. The fact that evil people and the devil exist creates a problem. Is this state of affairs God's will or not? If it is, you might say, he's a strange God. If it's not God's will, how can anything happen that's not the will of an all-powerful being? But anyone in authority can tell you how things can be according to your will in one way, yet contrary to your will in another way. Take moms, for instance. It makes perfect sense for a mom to say, I'm not going to make you go upstairs every night and clean your room. You've got to learn to keep it clean on your own. Then she goes up one night and finds the room a mess. That is against her will. She wanted the room to be clean. On the other hand, it was her will which left the kids the freedom to be messy. The same thing happens in the army, at work, in any school. You make a thing voluntary and half the people won't do it. That's not what you willed, yet your will has made the disobedience possible. It's probably the same with the universe. God created things which had free will. That means they can either go wrong or go right. Some people say they can imagine a creature which was free to do good or evil, but had no possibility of doing evil. But I can't imagine such a creature. If a thing is free to be good, it's also free to be bad. And free will is what has made evil possible. Why then did God give us free will if it makes evil possible? Because it's also the thing that makes any kind of love or goodness or joy worth having possible. A world full of robots or creatures that work like robots would hardly be worth creating at all. The happiness God wants for humanity is the happiness of being freely united to him and to each other in an ecstasy of love. Compared to this love, the most rapturous romance between man and woman is mere milk and water. To have that kind of love, humans must be free. Of course, God knew what would happen if we used our freedom the wrong way. And apparently he thought it was worth the risk. Perhaps you want to disagree with God about that. Perhaps you would rather give up love and also give up all this evil. But there's a problem you run into when you argue with God. He is the source from which all your reasoning power comes. You could not be right and he be wrong any more than a stream could be higher than the lake it's flowing out of. When you are arguing with him, you're arguing with the very power that makes you able to argue at all. It's like cutting off the branch you're sitting on. If God thinks the existence of war is a price worth paying for free will, if God thinks a world where people can be violent is a price worth paying in order to have a world where people can also do real good and things of real importance can happen, if God thinks evil is a price worth paying to have a world of free will instead of a world full of toys who only move when he pulls the strings, then we can understand this. It was worth the price. When we understand free will and love, we will understand how silly it is to ask the question that I'm sometimes asked. 
Why did God make humans so poorly that we were able to go wrong? Of course, you see, the better a creature is made, the smarter and freer it is, the better it will be when it goes right, but also the worse it will be when it goes wrong. A cow cannot be very good or very bad. A dog can be better, but also worse. An ordinary man can be better still, but also worse still. A genius, even better, but also even worse. And a superhuman angel or devil, the best or the worst of all. So one of you asked, how do you respond to a seeking non-believer friend who's bothered by the whole predestination, God has a plan, why bother thing? Well, the first question I would want to ask is, where are you with the whole predestination, God has a plan thing? If you love it, if you find it beautiful, then you have two choices. One, share the doctrine of predestination as you experience its beauty. If your friend likes science and philosophy, you could tell them about hard determinism and say, look, a lot of atheists believe in predestination. But rather than being a mindless consequence of the Big Bang, we believe a loving God has set all these things into motion. Your other option is that you could tell them about non-essential beliefs and say, there are lots of Christian beliefs about that. Don't let that one keep you from Jesus. And our church, the pastors don't even agree. And they get along just fine. If you don't subscribe to predestination, then you can say the sorts of things I say when asked this question. God is in control, but he gave us free will, and he takes that into account when he's planning the universe. God knows everything that is going to happen, not because he's a puppet master, but because he knows us, and he knows the universe so well. You have people like this in your life. You have friends you know so well that you can go play a practical joke on them. And before you do, you can tell your other friends, hey, come watch this. Because you know what's going to happen. You're not making that person act that way with your practical joke, but you know them so well, you can tell how it's going to turn out before it starts and you have everybody come along to see it. Same with God. He knows us so well. He can plan events for our life that will move us in directions that are good for us, if we'll let ourselves be moved by Him. Furthermore, with God's great power, He can reverse almost any bad decision we make. The whole Bible is ultimately the story of God making a promise, humanity doing every sin you can imagine to ruin the promise, but God and His power being able to keep the promise anyway. This is how we can say God is in control and you and I have free will. Therefore, I would tell your friend, you should absolutely bother. Why bother if God has it planned? There's every reason to bother. God's plan is all about being in love and having a deep friendship with you. So it absolutely matters how you respond to his planned offers. He'll never stop planning to reach you, and he'll do anything he can to reach you, except make you say yes to him. So one of you asked, God gave us free will, yet has a plan for us. How do we reconcile these two things? Like this. 
the reason God doesn't make you say yes to him isn't because he couldn't. He absolutely could. It's because he didn't want to. So even the fact that you have free will shows he is in control. You are the type of being he wanted to make when he made you. And now when you choose with your free will to love him, it's real love. And that was the will of God. The last of you asked, what will be the role of free will in the new kingdom? Can there be a world free of sin, but still full of freedom? Now to answer this question, I'm going to symbolically leave the stage. I'm doing this to uh, underline this truth. There are no scriptures to back up anything else that I have to say this morning. Because the scriptures tell us very little about what the new kingdom's like once you get there. The scriptures tell us a great deal about how to get there. Tons of words about who is there. You know, all kinds of fish, all kinds of birds, people from all over the world and every tribe and language and nation. Lots of that stuff. But what's it like once you get there? Not much is said. So I am no longer standing on the word of God standing down here. This is just you and I imagining together because the question asked us to imagine the new kingdom. So you can take everything said down here for what it's worth, which I'm confessing up front, ain't much. But will there be free will in the new kingdom? I think yes. I think the new kingdom will also be all about love. And love isn't real now without free will. And I don't think it will be real then either. But then there will be a kingdom where everyone has surrendered to God and to the ways of God. One of the things that disturbs me when people talk about heaven is when people say things like, Oh, I can't wait for heaven where you can eat chocolate ice cream all day long and never gain a pound. As if the discipline we're supposed to be learning now of not making ourselves happy with food becomes meaningless in heaven where you can eat chocolate ice cream all day long. I think the discipline we're learning now will need also for eternity to be happy. That endless chocolate ice cream shouldn't be where we get our happiness from. I also don't like it a whole lot when people say, in heaven we'll all live in giant mansions on a thousand pristine acres. As if all Jesus' teaching about being content with the simple life is suddenly rendered meaningless when he lets us all live like billionaires. I think Jesus is teaching us to put away materialism, not just because it's the key to getting into the kingdom of God, but also the key to living there happily for eternity Christian discipleship is not preparation for an eternity without Christian discipleship. Christian discipleship is not preparation for an eternity without calories and without budgets. Christian discipleship is about changing our belief that happiness comes from food and possessions. So we're fit to live in eternity where what is already true remains true. These things don't matter. I'm going to guess that the questioner is asking, if we have free will, what will keep it from resulting in evil in the new creation 
in the same way it has resulted in evil in this creation. I don't know if that's what they're asking, but I kind of think that's what they're asking. All right, for this answer, remember that I'm standing down here on the floor where it doesn't matter as much. Because there is a Christian political correctness out there where I'm supposed to say things like, um, we're just as sinful as the entire unbelieving world being in the church and following Jesus doesn't really make a difference. We're just as corrupt and off base and wrong as anyone else. I'm supposed to say things like that, but I can't. I used to say things like that, but after 43 years, I just don't believe that anymore. I just can't unsee the things I've seen. I can't unexperience the things I've experienced. I'll give you a few examples. I'm part of a Christian health insurance organization. It's all Christians, and we all pay for each other's medical bills through our monthly thing we send in. Do you know what this Christian insurance company does when there aren't very many medical bills in a given month? They cut my bill. Last month, my bill was cut 17% because there weren't very many sick people. Except last month was the month that I was just paying my annual dues, which can't be cut because the people's salaries that work there don't go up and down. So they passed my savings on up into January. Well, January didn't have very many medical bills either, so it had been cut also. So I got a double rate cut in January, 20% off. No non-Christian insurance company I've ever been a part of would have ever even thought about having a policy like that. Jesus changes the free will of his people. It's not a perfect company. It's not heaven to be part of that insurance group, but it's a lot closer than anything else I've ever been a part of. Last year, my daughter switched from public school to Christian school. Now, I was a public school teacher. My son still goes to public school. I have nothing against public school. Our need to switch was our fault, not the school's fault. But on my daughter's third day at Christian school, she got 100% on a quiz. It was uh, a quiz that most of the rest of the class did not do very well on. The teacher walked in and said, Class, Aiden has only been at our school for three days, and she just outscored all of you. In fact, she didn't miss any. My daughter froze in horror. How could this teacher call her out like that expose the new girl to ridicule and disdain and being called teacher's pet. And then the class broke into applause. A junior high class. They all broke into applause. Christian kids. I used to teach in a public school. I'm telling you, that little scene I described would never, ever, ever happen there. Now, that school is not perfect. It's not heaven, but it's a lot closer than average. Jesus does change the free will of his people. You go to a Christian concert this year held at the Sprint Center. The crowds are way more orderly, way more decent. I talked to the guy sweeping the steps one time. He said, this is like getting free money when they have these Christian concerts because the people pick up their own trash as they leave anyway. It's not perfect. It's not heaven to go to a Christian concert. You can find people acting up if you look really hard, but it's a lot closer than average. Jesus does change the free will of his people. I did a funeral last year. I always meet with the funeral director privately before. And in a candid moment, this funeral director said to me, I can always tell the families who have a spiritual faith. They're more positive. They're easier to work with. They are at peace. 
families without a church are angry, confused, bitter, and unruly. Jesus does change the free will of his people. Every part of Christian discipleship is changing us into the people we need to be to function in eternity in a sustainable way. That's how I imagine free will in the new kingdom. But it's just a guess. I'm standing down here on the floor. I know this. Every Christian theology on earth says somewhere in their statement, you have free will, so use it well. I believe in the new kingdom there will be free will. I also think there will be moments when we start to go wrong. But we'll be able to say in that moment from a place of authority, hey, remember where we came from. Do you really want to go back to that? And everyone will say, no. And do you know where the authority for that no will come from? Because everyone there has bent their knee to Jesus Christ. Which leads us to our next question. Will everyone in the new creation be Christian? Is Jesus the only way to God or are there many ways? That is our question for next week. And uh, I would like to say a blessing over you. I believe this blessing originally came from Deuteronomy. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.